This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for Monday, March 19th, 2018. The United States pays far more than any other country in the world for its healthcare system, and that doesn't even provide universal coverage. Many other countries guard their healthcare systems jealously, but today I have a speaker who says that the UK should move more towards a US-style system. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. You don't hear much music on podcasts. There's a reason for that. It's a legal copyright thing. You mostly can't play well-known music on a podcast. And even when you can, you can't play much of it. But that in the background there, that's by David Bowie. I'd suppose he's pretty well-known, or he was at least, depending on your generation. That's a track from his album Heroes, released in 1977, but I'll get back to why I'm playing it in a while. Anyway, in the meantime, I wanted to talk a bit about the people who don't appear on the podcast. It's obvious who I do have on the podcast, you can listen to them. Generally, what I do is when I hear about someone who I think is interesting, I send them an email or a tweet or whatever, and a lot of them are good enough to come back to me and take the time to record and you listeners hear the results. Sometimes people contact me to suggest someone I should have on, and sometimes people get in touch to suggest themselves, and that's all fine. I like to have lots of different voices, different viewpoints right across the political spectrum, and people with views that don't really fit anywhere on the spectrum. But I've noticed that there are some viewpoints that are really hard to persuade anyone to speak about. In fact, there's two in particular. You might remember that a few weeks back I had Linda Bellos, the veteran British feminist, on the podcast. She's a grandmother in her 60s, and she had no difficulty in putting across her point of view. She particularly was against trans women, that's to say people born male who have transitioned to female. She's particularly against them being regarded as women in the true sense. There's obviously a whole other side to that argument, and I'd love to have someone on who is a trans activist, or just someone who has a different opinion to Linda Bellos, to hear their views. So I researched. I contacted a bunch of different people at different advocacy groups, bloggers, put out a call on Reddit. No go. I only got one response, that was from an activist who asked me detailed questions about how the interview would be conducted. When I get an email like that, my heart sinks. I get the feeling that the person is fishing for an excuse to say no. So I have a standard text that I send back, which basically says that the interview is for them to express their views. They'll be treated respectfully. I never edit the interview in a misleading way. But of course, I'll ask whatever questions I think are relevant. And like almost always, when I send that standard text, I never heard anything back. 
So no interview yet with a trans activist, but I'm more than happy to have one if I can get a guest to come on. So girls and guys and anyone in between, get in touch. I'd be delighted to have a chat with you. Then there's a second point of view that I've been trying to get on the podcast. It's not like this is a marginal opinion. Well, maybe it is a marginal opinion, but it's not like there's any lack of voices making the claim. It's been heard here on Fox News, for example. In these zones, there are virtually no non-Muslim residents allowed. Supposedly, Sharia law reigns supreme and even police try and stay away. And here's another example, also on Fox News. There are essentially areas where immigrants are completely separated from um, the host country and where, um, in some cases, Islamic Sharia law is the, um, the law of those particular areas. The basic claim is that there exists, in European cities, Muslim-controlled areas where Sharia law applies, either legally or de facto, depending on who you're listening to, and that these are no-go zones where non-Muslims cannot or will not go. As well as being featured on Fox News, this claim is hugely popular on right-wing blogs and right-wing YouTube. Various posters have given very detailed descriptions of what they call Muslim enclaves in European cities, where Christians are either formally or informally excluded, where supposed Muslim patrols confront or harass people who drink alcohol, or women who don't cover their faces with veils, or anyone who isn't a Muslim. Typically, these stories contain lots of other juicy details, such as that the no-go zones are spreading rapidly, or even that armed police are afraid to enter them, and that all this is somehow the fault of whatever politician the poster doesn't like on the day. But there's one detail that pretty much never gets given about no-go zones. Where are they? It's not like you could hide a whole district of a city. There are thousands of versions of this story online and in other media, and almost none of them specify where you could actually find a no-go zone. Lots of them give vague hints. They say that they're everywhere in Europe or in every major city, but very few actually say where. And when they do say where, the problems are more obvious. Here's what one commentator said, again on Fox News. Uh, and in Britain, it's not just no-go zones. There are actual cities like Birmingham that are totally Muslim, where, where non-Muslims just simply don't go in. And parts of London, there are actually re Muslim religious police that actually beat and, and actually wound, uh, seriously, anyone who doesn't dress according to Muslim, religious Muslim attire. If either Fox News or Steve Emerson, that's who was speaking there, supposedly a terrorism expert, and if either he or Fox News had bothered to check the UK census figures on Wikipedia, they'd see that Birmingham is the second biggest city in the UK, the metro area has about 3.6 million people, and that 46% of the population is Christian, and a further 25% have no religion. They're typically people who came from a Christian background who are no longer religious. Muslims are less than 22% of the population. The then Conservative Prime Minister, David Cameron, didn't hold back. He called Steve Emerson an idiot, and Emerson issued a grovelling apology. 
Basically, the same thing happened when Fox News displayed a map of Paris with a series of areas marked out in red and claimed that they were no-go zones. People analysed the map and it was clear that the areas were basically marked at random. Fox News issued a withdrawal of sorts the next day in the face of huge online ridicule. But despite this, there are still many thousands of postings and websites online that claim these supposed no-go zones do exist. They're long on rhetoric about how Muslims have taken over and short on details of exactly where they have taken over. I got into a discussion on Facebook recently on a group where there are literally dozens of people telling each other this story, and in this case it was relating to Germany, and I asked a pretty simple question. Where are they? I won't go into what I was called for doubting such a sacred tenet of their belief system, but it's enough to say the conversation went round in circles quite a bit. Over and over, I was called blind, a denier, unwilling to look at the evidence, and each time I would just ask, what's the evidence? Where are these no-go zones? And eventually someone answered me. They posted a long piece of text that made me suspect that it was copied from somewhere else. So I googled a chunk of the text and I was right. It was pulled from an article by Soren Kern, the guy that you heard back there in one of the Fox News clips. And this is where I go back to David Bowie. article by Soren Kern gave a list of supposed no-go zones in Germany and first on the list was Berlin Neukölln and that track that I'm playing in the background is actually called Neukölln. I'm not sure why he called it but David Bowie was living in Berlin though not in Neukölln he was living in Berlin when he recorded that album and also long after Bowie I lived in Neukölln for about five years so I know the place pretty well. Berlin, by the way, is by far the city in Germany with the most Muslims, about half a million, maybe five times more than the next biggest Muslim population. I'm still in Berlin, I was back in Neukölln in the last few days, so I think I can say that the claim that it is a no-go zone for non-Muslims is total nonsense. Neukölln is certainly one of the less well-off areas of Berlin, there are certainly many immigrants there, but the huge majority of the population are white ethnic Germans, and many of the immigrants are from other European countries, like I was. I can't get a religious breakdown, but about 18% of the people in Neukölln are from immigrant stock from Muslim-majority countries. There was a mosque around the corner from my apartment. It wasn't purpose-built, just a room on the ground floor of an apartment building. I never saw anyone going in or out, although I'm sure they did. It's directly opposite a Bulgarian Orthodox Church, which seemed to me to be much more actively used. In the years I lived in Neukölln, I once, once, saw a woman wearing a face covering. Some women do wear headscarves, but they were far and away the minority amongst Muslims, let alone in the wider population. In all the years I lived there, the only crime I witnessed was people smoking dope in the street, which is pretty common all over Berlin. 
it's difficult to compare most crime statistics internationally because of differences in reporting and recording. The best statistic to compare is the murder rate because a murder is a murder anywhere and it's certain to show up in police statistics. The murder rate in the US is 5.6 per 100,000. In Berlin, it's 1.8. Now, there is huge social change going on in Neukölln, but it's exactly the opposite of what Soren Kern claimed. Neukölln is being rapidly gentrified. Property prices have gone up five-fold in the past 10 years. You can't turn around without seeing a newly opened bar or chic restaurant or an organic supermarket. Many of the non-European immigrants are actually Americans who are looking for a cool place to live while they work in a tech startup. So when I see Neukon being put at the top of the list of supposed no-go zones, it seems wildly inaccurate to me. And that's why I'm really disappointed that I can't get anybody of all these people who say they exist to come on the podcast. That's exactly what I would like to ask those commentators about. I've invited Soren Kern or any other spokesperson for his organisation onto the podcast, along with many other commentators. So far, no answer. Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, email podcast at challengingopinions.com and say what you think. On a Skype line now, I have Yaron Brook. He is an economist and a podcaster, and he's also a director of the Ayn Rand, and he's also a director of the Ayn Rand Institute. I guess that makes you a hardline free marketeer, Yaron. Um, but my yep. first, <laughs> definitely okay. My first question for you in that case is: Do you believe that a free market is a means or an end? Uh, is it a means or an end? It's both. I mean, it is a means to greater human flourishing. It is a means to um, to uh, greater human achievement and fulfillment and wealth and uh, success and all the spiritual values that come along with that. And it is also politically, it is an end. It, there is there is nothing more. There is nothing to be achieved beyond a free market in terms of politics. The, the end of politics is the establishment of a free market. For the purpose of greater human flourishing, as you see it? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so it is perhaps one step advanced, but a means to greater human flourishing. So my question really then is, if I was building a house and a hammer was good for hammering all the nails in to put logs together to build a house, I think that's a very useful tool. But if I use the hammer to hammer the glass into the windows, I probably wouldn't get very far. Isn't it possible that that free market as a tool sometimes just isn't the appropriate tool? Sure, of course. I mean, it's not an appropriate tool uh, to treat your two-year-old. It's not an appropriate tool uh, to deal maybe with with colleagues, you know, in in a in an artistic endeavor, it's not an appropriate tool in all kinds of contexts. Contexts, but when it comes to production, and when it comes to to the creation of material wealth, uh, free market is the only system that is consistent with human flourishing, consistent with the good. It doesn't mean that you apply the principles of economics to things that are not 
relevant economics you now in in a in a oh, okay well we let's can- let's narrow that down and say that because economics in its widest sense is an extremely broad field is it possible that the free market doesn't serve humanity best within that in some in any case no it's not possible but 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 let me just say that that i don't start with humanity i don't think you can i don't think it means anything to talk about serving humanity is it the system that best makes possible for individuals uh, who are who are willing uh, to work and to engage in reality and to engage in the world uh, to, to to be successful and to to thrive and to flourish? Yes. And then if you aggregate all those individuals up, then you get society. But you don't start with society. You start with the individual. So what is the system that makes it possible for an individual to flourish? It is the system of freedom. And, uh, and, and one must leave individuals free to pursue their own lives, their own values, sometimes to succeed and uh, sometimes to fail. But it mm-hmm. is their responsibility because it is their lives. Okay. Um, the reason I got in touch with you, because I saw one of your videos on YouTube, they're very entertaining, but one of them had a particular comment in it. And what I'll do is I'll play that comment for you. I can say pretty much anything to a British audience. And they'll go, okay, yeah, we disagree, we agree. But if I say anything about the NHS, oh my God, uh, it'd be dangerous for me to leave. Because you guys, I mean, for you, the NHS is like religion. It's like, it's unbelievable. And this is true. I mean, of course I'd abolish the NHS. The NHS is killing you guys. Jaron, why is the NHS killing British people, in your opinion? Well, because by socializing uh, a service that... The private sector provides, a, in which a, the private sector provides a far superior product. Mm-hmm. The NHS is providing the British people with an inferior product. It is putting them, placing them in line to get life uh, required treatments in which uh, many British people die in line waiting for treatments or die getting mediocre or, or, or really, really poor treatment. So it is a, a mediocre, inferior treatment with regard to something that's life or death, with regard to our medical services. And it's tragic that we leave such something so crucial uh, to, to an institution that has no ability to provide uh, health services, which is the government. Okay. Um, I should say for people who are not familiar with it, the NHS stands for the National Health Service in the UK. It covers 100% of the population and it's paid for directly out of taxation. Uh, There's no insurance system or anything like that. It's basically the salaries of nurses and doctors in hospitals, the cost of building hospitals and a whole range of other services and the entire health service is paid out of taxation. A very small proportion of British people have health insurance. It's usually wealthy people uh, who want uh, extra treatment. Um, but mostly it's typically not common to have health insurance in the UK. I'm just wondering, is it possible that that's more efficient and that gives a better service for your money than people in, for example, the US? And later in that video, I'll link to the video in the show notes for this podcast. But later in that video, you say that the US health system is superior. Are you really sure about that? Yeah, no, there's no doubt in my mind. I mean, if you have insurance, and I've always said, if you have insurance, the best healthcare system in the world is the United States. And you can ask any doctor who has to treat a patient with a severe disease where he would love to treat them. Mm -hmm. And every doctor will tell them they'd love to bring them to the Mayo Clinic or the Cleveland Clinic or some uh, hospital in the United States. That's true of of England. That's true of of Germany. That's true of Israel, where I come from, where my father is a physician Mm -hmm. in a 
decentralized system. Uh, I okay, get pa- pause for that. Pause for that, Yaron, because I want to understand the, the philosophical background for that first. And essentially what you're saying and what the, the hardline free marketeers like people who who follow Ayn Rand say, is that it is inherently more f- efficient for an individual to spend their own money than it is for the government to take their money in taxes and to spend it for them. I- is that, that a good summation of, of, of what you believe is driving that? Well, I would say it's two things. There's no question that that is more efficient, but it is more than just more efficient. It is It is the only moral system. It is immoral. It is wrong for the government to take my money and assume that they know how to spend it differently than I know how to spend it. Only I can decide what values and, and what is appropriate for me. Some centralized bureaucrat, some central planner defining what appropriate health care is for me is both inefficient and immoral and wrong. And, and so to me, the NHS is both a travesty practically in terms of how it treats its patients. And, mm-hmm. uh, and one can, could look at any kind of statistics regarding uh, 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 heart disease or, or cancer, real life-threatening stuff, not when you get the snivels. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the NHS fails on all accounts when it comes to, to those kind of things. And okay, let's, you- let's look at a few of the facts on that because I've been looking at this and I've got a lot of facts here, particularly from uh, the World Bank, which I think is a fairly reputable supplier of statistics on this. And the first thing I would note is that the UK is a considerably poorer country than the US. And I don't want to go into the details of why that might be the case, but that's certainly true. To give you an idea, Mississippi is the poorest state in the United States. If the UK were to join the US and become the 51st state of the United States, then Mississippi would be the second poorest state and the UK would be the poorest state in the United States. So it's it's considerably poorer you adjusted if you adjusted for uh, uh, PPP for the price parity. Um, yes, when you do um, that, the figure is not quite so embarrassing for the US. But by any reasonable measure, the UK is very considerably poorer than the US. So the size of the GDP in the UK is considerably lower than the size of GDP per person is considerably less than that in the US. Capital base. Yes, exactly. Typically, healthcare is measured as a percentage of GDP, but of course, 1% of GDP per person in the US is more than that in the UK because the US is richer. But nevertheless, put that aside and just measure in GDP. The UK spends less than half of what the US spends on healthcare, but the UK actually has a considerably longer lifespan than the US. So the average lifespan in the UK is 81.4 years. It's 78.8 years. So it's several years shorter in the US. Now, if you look at OECD countries, the developed countries, typically the lifespan tracks healthcare spending. So the more you spend on healthcare, the longer your people live. That's not terribly surprising. But the US is an enormous exception to that. By a mile, it spends the most on healthcare. And it's quite poor in terms of uh, lifespan. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. And the reason for that is that the United States does not have free market healthcare. I mean, it's absurd to think of the United States as having free market healthcare. Again, as I said in my talk, I said, mm. If you have private health insurance in the United States, you get the best health care in the world. And mm-hmm. I would put up any data that to, to prove that case. The fact is... Should any any bo- private health care? 
Any private healthcare. Any, any private, private healthcare gives you the best healthcare in the world. 51% before Obamacare, before mm-hmm. Obamacare was passed, I don't know what the number is today. Before Obamacare was passed, 51% of every dollar spent on healthcare in the United States was spent by government. Mm-hmm. That's so correct, yeah. System 51%. Now, today it's probably 60%. But so that if you look at where uh, prices are going through the roof, they're going through the roof in Medicare and Medicaid to government programs, socialized health. No, no, no. That's, that's actually that's flat wrong. I've looked this up. Um, healthcare inflation has been very, very high in the United States. It's slowed quite dramatically under Obama. Yes, it slowed quite dramatically under Obama, but after it rose a huge amount for many, many decades, right? Yes. By and the way, Obama just, and in particular Obamacare put a break on healthcare inflation. Look at the data. It went up in the last couple of years of Obama's term. That is, it slowed in the first few uh, years. Insurance companies were worried about Obamacare. And then it accelerated as they increased premiums in the last few years uh, under, under Obama, under the Obama administration. But look, I don't care about costs. Costs are irrelevant. Um, I'll give you, uh, you know, I can give you lots of examples of this, but the fact is that I spend much more money on healthcare, uh, than, than maybe a lot of other people. Why? Because I, I'm wealthy enough to be able to do it. So for example, if I get, if I get a little sick mm-hmm. and I'm a little worried, then I'm, 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 I'll run into a clinic in the United States and get an MRI. Mm-hmm. I don't have to stand in line for three weeks to get an MRI. Mm-hmm. I can get an MRI within 20 minutes of when I want one. Mm-hmm. And in the United States. But, but the, 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 Yaren, Yaren, the evidence is that doesn't tend to, Im- that doesn't seem to improve lifespans in the U.S. But it doesn't matter. Life is not about lifespan. It's about quality of life. So if I don't have True. to stand in line for three weeks and worry about whether I have a tumor in my brain because, because I'm seeing double, which actually happened to me, instead I get an MRI and then the doctor says, well, maybe we should do a, a, a CAT scan. And we do a CAT scan. It cost me, I don't know, $1,000. But I have peace of mind that I don't have a brain aneurysm. Now, how do you measure that? Now, in, in, in Israel, where my brother had something very similar, maybe it's genetic, the whole thing, he had to wait three weeks in line un, where he doesn't know if he's got a brain aneurysm or, or a tumor or what it is. It turned out to be nothing. I got the peace of mind immediately. Now, how okay, do you- hold, hold on for a second. Hold on for a second, Yaron. I'm absolutely willing to concede that for people who have good health insurance in the U.S., the healthcare is better than the NHS in the UK. I would certainly agree with you on that. Uh, there are other countries in Europe, for example, France, that spends a couple of points, a couple of percentage points more of their GDP on healthcare, have a socialized system and have a, a much better quality system than the NHS. But what I want to just focus on, there's one astonishing figure, which is that the percentage of GDP that the UK spends, that the UK government spends to fund the NHS is less than what the US government spends on healthcare. So for every tax dollar a an American earns, more of that tax dollar is going to government-funded healthcare than would be the case if they were in the UK. I agree. The United States government is the uh, most inefficient provider of healthcare. Maybe but but on whole. top of that, people in the people That's in the in, no. Hold on for a second, Yaron. Hold on for a second. On top of that, again, the you, people have to pay pretty much enough to double that amount. So in the U.S., about half of healthcare expenditure comes from the government, and about half comes from insurance. That's in, an incredibly inefficient system, isn't it? 
Yeah, we should get. I, I agree completely. We should. And get it's get, vastly more efficient in the UK. No, but it could be. It, but it's. But it's much lower quality, which I'm not willing to tolerate. So I do, would. Do, take, but the evidence isn't that it's much lower quality. Lifespans are longer in the UK. No, the solution is actually it's not true. The life expectancy numbers are just not true. If you control for factors that nobody wants to control for, if you control for obesity, so lifestyle, if you control for race, that is genetics, if you control for other factors, life expectancy in the United States is not shorter than it is in the United Kingdom. If you if if if, if so, well, if you control for dying, surely it's not. But I mean, yeah, that's part of part of the problem, isn't it? And Swedes in America, Swedes in the United States live just as long as Swedes in Sweden. Uh, Japanese in America live the longest of all people on earth because they live the same as Japanese, Japanese. So if you control, because we have the United States is such a diverse country, mm-hmm. if you control for the factors that have to do with genes, then what happens is you find that life expectancy in the United States is not low. And of course, you have to also control for for. for for culture, that is for, for people's behavior, not just for what the doctors do and what the healthcare system do. But the fact is that if you have cancer or heart disease, your, your, uh, your ability to survive treatment is three to four times greater in the United States than it is in the United Kingdom. Okay, if you ju- have- just to ask you, no, just to ask you a specific question on that then. The U.S. spends about $10,300 per person per year on healthcare. The UK, that figure in the UK is about $4,000. So it's about 60% less. Are you saying that that, uh, that the US pay, paying way more than double, that they're getting value for money for that? I'm saying I don't know who the US is. I'm saying that my health insurance is the best in the world and people who buy health insurance from the private sector in the United States have the best health insurance in the, in the world. There's no and law against I- health insurance in the UK. I let you finish. Let me finish. Go ahead. And I want everybody to have the best healthcare system in the world. And the way to do that is to privatize all the healthcare systems around the world, including in the United States. That is to get rid of the 50% that government spends on healthcare and distorts the market and perverts the market and cor- provides corrupt incentives to doctors, hospitals, drug companies, etc. Yeah, and I want to move on to incentives in a moment, but there's no law against private health insurance in the UK. There are plenty of offerings, but most people in the UK don't bother, including really quite wealthy people, don't bother to take out health insurance. They seem to be satisfied with the NHS. Yeah, I know. People, people are sheep. What can, what can I do? And it's sad. It's well, sad. But the UK government spends even less on healthcare per person than the US government. If they understood that, that if they got really sick, they are much more likely to survive the sickness in the United States than in the UK, they would buy global health insurance if they could afford it and fly to the US to get treatment when they could. And many wealthy people actually do that. Hold on for a second, because I, I want to address that particular point. You said that, and you're correct, you said that many people around the world who are ill frequently come to the United States for treatment. And that's absolutely true. Those are very wealthy, elite people who come to elite healthcare facilities in the US. And that happens to Americans as well. You will, uh, um, I seem to remember before he died, sadly, um, Steve Jobs, uh, on a couple of hours notice flew halfway, uh, across the continent in the US in order to get a liver transplant. But that elite healthcare is available to elites in the US as it is 
to elites around the world, but it's not really available to regular people in the U.S. Again, if you have health insurance, sure, it's available. So I have regular health insurance. I don't have anything. I, indeed, I have a very high deductible health policy that only covers kind of really uh, surgeries and things like that. Mm-hmm. When I had to have back surgery, I saw eight different doctors to get second opinions because I, I wanted to be sure that what I was doing was the right thing. The insurance paid for all eight doctors. I then had state-of-the-art surgery at, based on the doctor that I chose. Uh, and, and it was world class, uh, world class. Uh, I was treated with world class in a private room paid for by my health insurance policy. So, no, I, I, I think it's a myth. Yes, you, you can find exceptions here and there where the health insurance company seems to be doing something that doesn't make any sense. But for most Americans, again, who have health insurance, and I wish all of them had health insurance. And let's I wish let's move on to that. Yaren, let's move on to that because you said in that, in that video, uh, you said this. You know how much insurance, health insurance in the United States, in places that have very few regulations, costs? Less than your monthly cell phone bill. That's how much it costs to get insurance. Uh, are you sure it costs less for health insurance than a cell phone? It, it, it did before Obamacare, absolutely. I mean, I'm talking about catastrophic health insurance with a high deductible that covers you for what insurance should cover you, which is the, the major expenses of health. What figure are you referring to? Obamacare, uh, I, mean, I mean, I'm talking about, uh, about $100 a month. A hundred dollars a month. Okay. Let me slow down on that because I want to pivot on that because it's quite a, a neat uh, point to pivot on. I'm in Berlin in Germany at the moment and I got a, a cell phone plan here. My cell phone doesn't cost a hundred dollars a month. It costs eight euros, which is about ten dollars a month. And it gives me more minutes and more uh, data on the internet than I can possibly use. I always don't even come close to using up what I'm allowed to use. Even the cheapest cell phone plans in the U.S. are very considerably, they're usually at least double the cost of those in competitive European markets. Why is that? I haven't looked at it. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Okay. And there's one other aspect. I don't know whether you have an Android or an iPhone, but Apple are the only company that I'm aware of that have resisted this. And I'm aware that the EU, the uh, European Commission is taking action against them because they haven't followed um, what's called a directive called the Common External Power Supply. But if you have an Android phone, you'll know that that little USB connector to charge it, or you probably have found out that it will also the, fit. The central planners, again, are telling us how to charge our phones. So for, roll, roll, hold, hold on. Let me explain to people. I knew, I knew you were going to be triggered by this. So I, I, I want to just tell people what it is first. The headphones, yeah, and the, the Bluetooth headphones that I have, I can charge them with the same charger. Uh, my Amazon Kindle, I can charge them and pretty much every rechargeable device. As I said, with the exception of Apple, wasn't that just a smart regulation to say that all these devices should uh, uh, work in common? It reduces the amount of electronics waste. I think we should all wear the same clothes as well, because ultimately, if we all wear the same clothes, we'll spend a lot less money on clothes. We can all wear those gray uniforms that Mao Zedong had. Uh, <laughs> I mean, really, I mean, it's it's pathetic. Really? Uh, you know, can't decide what charges to use. We have to have a central planning bureaucrat in Brussels. No, no, you can use any charger you want, but the, the, the connector fits to any device. They have to, some bureaucrat has to decide instead of the market deciding. And, and what happens when somebody innovates and produces a far better connector that is three times faster and charges your phone three times faster? 
Then, then we have to apply to the bureaucrat. Please allow me to use this new no, cable. But pa- pause it's- on that. Pause on that, Yaron. That's not what happens in reality. What happens in reality is what Apple is doing is like fl- have charges that do exactly the same thing, and they flip them around every year to 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 maximize their sales. But the fact is that Apple is the only innovative company in this in in the whole business, right? Everybody copies everything that Apple does, and there's a reason for that. Amazon and the reason- Kindle isn't a copy of Apple ecosystem they they've they've made usb-c for example mm-hmm. a standard now in computing and the pc world is copying that the the the, the, the cabling actually is an improvement over other cabling and what should happen is that the android devices should copy the apple devices so i mean the whole idea that you or anybody in brussels knows what the appropriate strategy for cabling is is ludicrous and it's exactly that it's it's putting us all in great clothes so we all look the same behave the same because some central planner has decided that's more efficient and that goes back to nhs it's the same thing put us all into the same healthcare plan because we all need exactly the same thing and we all should be treated exactly the same way no i want people to have choices i want freedom freedom means something freedom means the choices at the, at the simplest level to buy whatever cable, whatever phone you want. Are you honestly saying, Yarn, that there isn't an imbalance in power sometimes between the supplier and the consumer that just means that that, that that ideal cannot happen. I can actually switch to an Android. I can actually dump Apple mm-hmm. in a moment's notice and go to any other company. What what imbalance of power is there between me and Apple? I have all the power. I have all the choices. Now, what the what you're trying to do and Brussels is trying to do is take power away from me. I'm you're not trying, trying to, to take power at all. You're trying to limit my choices in terms of what cables I use and what cables I don't use, and it's none of your business. Okay. On one other thing, I think we can let let listeners make their own decision on. That. But on one other thing, SMS messages are pretty much out of fashion these days. People typically use WhatsApp or so and so forth. But in Europe in the 1990s, again, the European Commission developed a common standard and instructed all telecom companies to use it, which developed SMS. And it was nearly eight years later before SMS took off in the US. The concept of uh, text messages just didn't exist. They started around the year 2000 in Europe. It was 2007. 2008 before that technology took off in the United States for the simple reason that the telephone companies were trying to use competitive standards and have uh, proprietary standards that didn't intercommunicate. And the result was that the market just didn't flourish until uh, they all adopted the European SMS standard. Isn't there some regulation sometime that can help? It's funny because we started this conversation by saying the UK would be a little bit wealthier than Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true of almost all European countries because the UK is one of the richest, if not the richest. Oh, not anymore. Well, it, it depends on how you count the currency, but they're, they're falling fast. But all those countries would, would come in in the 40s in terms of how poor they are. I'll take – with all the flaws in the US system and mm-hmm. it's far from free market and it's far from true capitalism and, and heavily regulated, far more regulated than I'd like, I'd still take the US system for innovation any day over what comes out of Brussels or over what comes out of any European country. Um, sure, you can come up – Europe started using ATMs way before the United States did. Yeah. You come out with specific examples where Europe was ahead of the United States. But overall, Europe is relatively poor as compared to the United States. And when mm-hmm. it comes to innovation, I think that 75%, if I was reading right, at least in healthcare, mm-hmm. 75% of all innovation in healthcare happens in the United States. I think mm-hmm. probably 
when it comes to technology, the number's far greater than that even. Yeah. Um, I, you know, Yaron, I agree with a lot of things that you say. And generally, when I come across bureaucracy, it gets me very frustrated. And generally, I think people's, people's freedoms should not be curtailed unless there's a very, very good reason, a very compelling reason why. But once in a while, there are regulations that just help everybody. And I, it seems oh never they 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 disguise themselves as helping everybody. But of course, you can't separate those out from all the other regulations that that do us great harm. And even the regulations that supposedly help us, we don't have the alternative universe where uh, those regulations were put in place. And maybe somebody came up with a new innovation that 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 changed the world completely. Imagine if the world had standardized through regulation for lighting on kerosene, right? Mm-hmm. Kerosene is the only lighting made possible. Well, Thomas Emerson invented the, the yep, light bulb. Yep. Would that have been a lot slower? You, you just can't you can't know that. My my default is always always towards individual freedom and individual choices. I I agree 100%. The default should be towards freedom and individual choices. But Yaron, what what I have a problem with is when you say, no, Yaron, hang on a second. The only word that I have a problem with that you say there is the word always. And when you say always, it seems to me more like a religion than practicality, that you're going to say, even if evidence in particular cases shows that a regulation would be smart, we're not going to do it because of this belief system. There is no such thing as evidence in that because, again, you don't have the parallel universe and nobody is smart enough to be able to tell what would have happened if the regulation doesn't exist. I've, I, no, I've yes, worked. we do because, Yaron, hang on a second. Because Central this, no, hang on a second. Yaron, Yaron, we have exactly this because the common external power supply, this is only a European uh, directive. It has no uh, writ outside of the EU and nevertheless, once nudged in that direction, Every power supply for pretty much every rechargeable uh, product now, with the exception of Apple, uses that same uh, uses that same uh, connector, which is very convenient. Yes, but we don't. You don't know what the consequence of that are going to be over the next five years or ten years, and you can't predict it, and nobody can. Sure, but and everyone if- in the U.S. is free to use whatever one they want. But once nudged, once the international suppliers were nudged in that direction, they use that. Yes, but but of course the EU is going to put going to put uh, a pressure, uh, to call it a force on Apple mm-hmm. to change. And then you'll, so you'll get already, a, yeah. a new path in reality. So Apple is spending R&D on making the shift instead of spending R&D on, on advancing other stuff. I mean, no, it doesn't work. The whole premise that that any central planner can decide on your individual values. And if it's cabling, then there's no end to what they are going to implement. And, and indeed, if you look at Brussels, there are – thousands of regulations, I dare say probably tens of thousands or more. Mm-hmm. How many of them make sense like the cabling supposedly does? Uh, but once you give the regulators the power to regulate one, you've given them the, re- the power to regulate everything. And again, I will take America with, with an inefficient, so-called inefficient cabling system, but rich over a poor efficient cabling Europe. Okay. Yaron Brook uh, from the Ayn Rand Institute, thank you very much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thank you. Never miss a show. Follow at Challenging O on Twitter and like Challenging Opinions on Facebook for updates on each show's contents. 
That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on March 19th, 2018. You can find links to Yaren's podcast in the show notes on the website. And I've also got extensive references for all the statistics that I was quoting in the discussion. And if you know someone else who I should interview, I would always be interested to hear your opinions on what I should talk about and who I should talk to. If you like the Challenging Opinions podcast, you can follow the show on Twitter at ChallengingO and follow Yaron Brook at Yaron Brook and also like the show on Facebook. But most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use Apple Podcasts, Google Play or any other podcast app or software. There's links and an RSS feed and all that on the website. And if you don't use a podcast app or software, you can subscribe by email. Just enter your email address on the Challenging Opinions website. And each time a new show goes online, you get a simple email with a link to listen. No spam, I promise. You can find all of that and get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. The Challenging Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.